Where Ideas Launch, the podcast for the sustainable innovator. We won't save the planet by recycling 50% of our waste. We save it by not creating waste. Season two goes heavily into circular business models and innovation while creating a space to discuss issues important to our society, like education. Join me and my guest as we explore and create pathways toward a future for the planet. Hello there. I'm really excited to introduce to you today, David Gertine, who's a writer, speaker, and conversational facilitator. The focus of his work, Conversational Leadership, a style of working where we appreciate the power of conversation and take conversational approach to how we connect, relate, learn, and work with each other, is the subject of his newest work. He is the creator of the Gertine Knowledge Cafe, a conversational process to bring a group of people together to learn from each other, build relationships, and make a better sense of a rapidly changing, complex, and less predictable world. He has facilitated hundreds of knowledge cafes and workshops in over 30 countries worldwide for the past 20 years. He's the founder of the Gertine Knowledge Community, a global network of over 20,000 people in 160 countries. He's currently writing an online book, a cross between a blog and a book, called Conversational Leadership. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. I'm looking forward to it. Wonderful. So, David, we met in February 2020. I don't know if you remember exactly. I remember. <laughs> but this was at a knowledge cafe that you were hosting at Regents University. And the central topic was about whether or not universities remain relevant in preparing students for work. It was my first knowledge cafe and I loved the format. But please tell our listeners about knowledge cafes and why you created it. Okay, and we've got to go back a few years. We've got to go back, I guess, probably to the turn of the millennium. And I used to get involved in a lot of knowledge management conferences and other conferences. And I guess during my lifetime, you know, a lot of other conferences and workshops. And I was just really concerned that, uh, you know, that they were very much presentations. They were they were talk and chalk events. And I was particularly concerned about knowledge management conferences because they were about learning, they were about informal learning, they were about communities of practice. And when you had a whole series of speakers on stage just talking at the audience, running over time, not giving opportunity for questions, it was possible to go to a conference for the whole day and other than lunch and breaks, not to get to talk to anybody. And uh, I just thought this was crazy. It just didn't seem to make sense that we were still working in that old format. And so I wanted to create a process, a method, uh, an, an event that was fundamentally conversational. So I spent quite a long time thinking about that. And in September 2002, I ran my first so-called Knowledge Cafe at the Strand Palace Hotel in central London, just a few hundred yards from uh, from Trafalgar Square. And the idea of the cafe was really a very simple one, that like an evening talk, it would probably last an hour, maybe, maybe two. There would still be a speaker, there would still be a topic, but the speaker would only get to speak for maybe five minutes, 10 minutes, at the, at the very most 20 minutes, if they had some interesting uh, content, because the whole idea of the cafe was for it to be about conversation 
not about the speaker. And so the speaker would speak for that short while, pose a question to the group. Uh, people would be sitting in small groups, threes or fours, um, ideally at round tables, um, but those were not always available. Uh, there would be no uh, host at the tables. There would be nobody um, facilitating the conversations at the tables. I wanted everybody to, to maybe not have an equal voice because in any circumstances, people don't have an equal voice, but you know, an equal opportunity to speak. I didn't want anybody to be in control of the conversation. Um, in fact, I often used to say at the time, I wanted a conversation a little bit like the one that you might have down the pub or in a, yeah. in a cafe, um, a very free-flowing uh, conversation. Um, people would there's, have a rumor, there's a rumor that that's where Adam Smith came up with his best work, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people probably came up with their best work uh, down the pub. Um, people would speak, we'd have that conversation for maybe 15 minutes. And then I'd simply ask a few people to change tables. And again, the whole essence of the cafe was informality. So I didn't want some sort of uh, contrived instructions as to how to move. I'd, I'd simply say, could a few people now move table? Um, you experienced this uh, um, back at uh, Regents yeah. University. So a few people move table and we continue the conversation, same question, same topic. And we do that typically three times, typically about 15 minutes. And then at the end, I bring people together to have a whole group conversation. Now, in the early days, I used to let them stay where they where they were. We tried to have a whole group conversation with people scattered around the room. And I soon realized that didn't work terribly well because a lot of people had their backs to each other. They couldn't hear each other. And I realized that it, it was not that difficult to tell people just to push their tables to one side and to form a circle with their chairs. And the great thing about that circle is, you know, effectively everyone's equal. Everyone's on the same level. I'm in the circle. If I'm hosting, I'm in the circle with them. So I'm, I'm not standing out in somewhere at the front of the room. Uh, everyone can see and hear each other. And it only takes a few minutes to form that circle. And then what I don't want, what I didn't want was like so many workshops, people reporting back, somebody standing up and basically giving a summary of what was discussed in, in, in their group. I wanted it to be, as best it could with a larger group, a, um, a conversation. And so then I very lightly facilitate that conversation. And I'm not there to add my voice or to control the outcome. I'm just there to make sure, really, that um, everybody who wants to speak gets to speak. Wow. And so we have that whole group conversation and we draw to a close. Yeah. And of course, the usual question people say, well, what are the outcomes? And I simply say the outcomes are what people take away in their heads, which is mm -hmm. actually no difference to a conference. Yeah. The, the, the Knowledge Cafe isn't a workshop for making decisions or, or whatever. It's for engaging in conversation, to learn more about a topic, to make better sense of the world, to build relationships, you know, a whole load of um, things that are usually seen as, as soft. They're not about making decisions. They're about having they're about having interesting conversations. So that's the very essence of the cafe. I love this. And what I found interesting about this particular cafe that I attended was that the audience were 
officially authorities, right? Most of them were authors. They were actually authors of papers, of, of books, of, of great content. So they are actually authorities in the space of education. But they all seemed, and maybe maybe that's maybe that's unfair to say, but it all it seemed as if they weren't comfortable with where things were going, where things were trending in terms of education and the sort of informal learning that has been cropping up, not just in terms of your cafes, but even social learning online um, and different formats. So it was quite interesting to see the the kind of fear as well that what they had built no longer stood on strong footing. I don't know if you if you felt that nervousness. <laughs> I've learned not to feel nervous in the cafes. I've learned to just, I often say in the cafes, it's the conversation that's in charge to let the conversation take people where the conversation wants to take them. Um, so I'm not, um, I'm not necessarily looking, as I say, for any particular outcome. Yeah. I think with that particular cafe and a lot of cafes, um, there's a, a vast range of, of opinion. Yeah. There's a lot of differences. And it's interesting because people often say to me, well, you know, what happens if uh, things get argumentative and, and people you know, start to fight? And if you noticed in that particular cafe, at times there was a little bit of tension, but it never gets out of hand. I've never had to... Um, you know, become some sort of authoritative facilitator to keep things under control. Um, there is a little tension, but not a great deal. And that's good because you know, people are, I want people's ideas to be challenged, you know, um, gently enough that they will stop and listen, um, you know, and, and not too aggressively that they're going to get angry and, um, and dig their heels in. So it's, it's, it's about dialogue. It's about learning from each other. It's about listening more than it is, uh, than it is talking. Yeah. And uh, you know that, that was a particularly good evening, because uh, as you remember, there were lots of different opinions um, yes. from. Yes. But again, it's an interesting group because there were quite a few academics there. Yes. From the university, and then there were a lot of people from outside the university. Um, we were talking about education. Everyone, but everyone's got a view on education. Um, yes. And, and so it, that, that evening did make for some very interesting conversation. I, I think I'm going to take us now to a question I wanted to ask you last, but I'm going to ask it to you now, mm -hmm. which is how do you go about holding space for conversations with people who are diametrically opposed in their ideas and their opinions? So, you know, and we're going to touch on something um, that happened last week, but f before we even go there, how mm -hmm. would you go about approaching that as a as a participant i mean this is something that i've given a lot of thought to um maybe over this last year or so and i've actually I've given it a lot of thought over over many years but i think maybe this last year or so i've made a little bit of progress in my understanding and my thinking about it because in some ways it's it's, in some ways, it's not so much about the conversation. It's about people's beliefs and how people form their beliefs. So, you know, we've got somebody on the one side who's hard left, somebody on the other side who's hard right. They've got those fixed beliefs and they, um, they do battle <laughs> in conversation. And so, you know, the question is, how do people form their beliefs? Um, or how do people you know, come to 
beliefs that, you know, by any rational measure, don't make too much sense. Now we, now we tend to think as human beings that we're rational creatures. The one thing I've learned, I guess from experience for one, but also from a lot of reading this last year or so, is that we're anything but rational creatures. The way we form our beliefs is something I've been looking at. And uh, just the nature, the nature of knowledge. So, sorry, but this is a bit of a long-winded answer. It's fine, go ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Um, I'm sure you believe that the Earth circles the sun. I hope you do. Most people do. I think it's about 24% of Americans believe that the sun circles the Earth. So it's not everyone. But think about it. You believe it, I believe it. It's counterintuitive. The sun rises in the east, it sets in the west. If I say, no, 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 <laughs> it's, it's all an illusion. The earth is in fact spinning and the earth is circling the sun. Um, you'd say, surely you'd say rubbish, prove it. You know, the earth's spinning, I can't feel the earth spinning. It, it, it goes against rationality in a way, but we know from our science and a lot of other factors that it's indeed indeed true. So how do we know that the Earth circles the Sun? I mean, I've got a degree in physics and I probably couldn't convince you from basics that the Earth circles the Sun. Um, I probably couldn't convince myself from, from the evidence. I, I, would, I, would, I would have difficulty. We know, quote unquote, know that the Earth circles the Sun because somebody told it to us or we read it somewhere as a child. Somebody in authority, maybe a parent, maybe a teacher, somebody who we trust, this is the key word trust, told it to us and we accepted it relatively blindly. And so this is a piece of knowledge that we claim to have. I know the earth circles the sun. We don't know it at all. We simply trust somebody who thinks they know it. Yes. So that's the first little piece of that. Now think of um, human, human made global warming, anthropogenic global warming. I believe it. Do you believe it? Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Greta Thunberg believes it. I haven't read the scientific papers. I'm sure you haven't. I'm, I'm positive Greta hasn't. <laughs> Have we read the scientific papers? If we read them, could we make sense of them? Have we read the papers by scientists who hold contrary, contrary beliefs? You know, do we know ourselves, know in that, that deeper sense that global warming exists? No, we don't. We trust, and who do we trust? We trust the scientific community. Now, people like say Donald Trump and a lot of other people do not trust the scientific community. In fact, they positively distrust the scientific community. Some of them, probably through experience, for very good reason. So our beliefs are not founded on, um, on knowing, but they're founded on trust. So that's the, that's the first point here. So this is the fundamentals of the knowledge delusion. 
It's the fundamental of what I call the knowledge delusion. Um, other people call it a knowledge illusion, but the more I think about it, it's, it's a delusion rather than an illusion. If we stop and think about this, we know we don't know this stuff. You know, it's a delusion. It's not, it's not just an illusion. Um, the, the other piece to this, so th this is true of most of our knowledge. Most of our knowledge hasn't been gained um, empirically through experience. It's been handed to us mainly through our education system, yes. So we don't actually know this stuff. Now, you then start to look at people who have got beliefs and how they form those beliefs, maybe how, how those beliefs are questioned. And a lot of the time, if people have got a certain erroneous belief, maybe an obviously erroneous belief, the answer is in a lot of the media is we need to give them better evidence and our education system needs to um, educate them better in critical thinking. That, that's so often the response. The interest, see, what I've been looking at is, is because this is such a deep problem, um, I've been looking at it and questioning all of this and looking at the psychological research. And the psychological research says no. If you give people more evidence and you and you train them as to be better critical thinkers, they double down on their erroneous belief. It doesn't work. And there's a um, um, professor of actually he's a law professor, I think, but um, uh, in professor of uh, cognitive psychology at uh, Yale University, Dan Cahan, and he has done a whole load of interesting research that basically, I won't go into the depths of it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit complex, but he's, he's basically shown very clearly that, uh, and he's, he's done this with political, well, he's actually done it with all sorts of beliefs, but, but the one main study was political beliefs. He's shown how someone's political belief will, shall we say, warp, corrupt um, their numerical um, reasoning ability. And, he, and what he's showing quite clearly is the more capable somebody is of critical thinking, the more capable they are of cherry picking the evidence that they need to support their pre-existing belief and building a strong case for it. So if you're on the left, you're going to cherry pick the information that you want and build a, build a belief. If you're on the right, you're going to cherry pick different data and create a different construct. Um, and so evidence and critical thinking, um, I guess some of the time will work, but for a lot of people, they will just double down on their beliefs. So you start to realize with those two little insights, if you will, into the way that we form our beliefs and the way we defend our beliefs, that a lot of the common sense thinking that we've lived with for most of our lives is well at worst nonsense <laughs> it's it's scary but it's actually evident in many different things right so this you know we we talk about education on this topic and knowledge but this is also evident in terms of whether you feel like you have more right to live in a place than another person or whether you have 
more, um, you know, when we talk about privilege and all of this, you know, it, it also gets into all of those decisions, right? Um, I was looking at some research um, done by a university where they gave people, uh, two players, um, a roll of a dice to play a game of Monopoly. And the, the guy who won the first roll of the dice would get double the benefit, double the support of the one who lost that roll of the dice. And by the end of the game, when they played, that player who got the advantage at the beginning, he became more arrogant, he became more self-assured, he became stronger in his will and stronger in his imposition on the other player. And by the end, he said that he won because he made better decisions, not because he had an advantage. Yes. <laughs> so you see, even, even in a game scenario where people know that it's rigged, and they still cannot uh, separate themselves from this feeling of, of, or this knowledge that they are somehow better than. So this, this permeates all our society in so many everything. different ways. And I think it's one of the things that we've, I know that we need to be taught it, but, but somehow we need to, to come to the, the um, realization um, is that we're not rational human beings. Um, we are, yeah, we're simply not rational. So for me, so coming back to your question about difficult conversations, it seems to me that before you can maybe have a difficult or what I sometimes call an impossible conversation, you know, conversation across the divides. In fact, I've got this list up here on, here on my wall to remind me that there are a few things that we need to accept. Now, I'm, I'm not saying these are easy things for everyone to accept. So the first thing is we need to be prepared to question and revise our beliefs. We need to understand what I've just been talking about and be prepared to say, okay, um, maybe after all, I don't understand this stuff. Maybe some of my beliefs um, about the world are erroneous um, and uh, I'm more than happy to have a conversation to, um, you know, to learn more or maybe help you, you know, who I'm talking to learn more. So that's the first thing. No, no. Once you once you got to that stage, um, I did a couple of uh, Zoom knowledge cafes uh, at the end of last year called uh, um, "We Must Not Be Enemies." Um, we are enemies. So we are we are friends, not enemies. Yeah, because once you realise that maybe how we formed our beliefs, you realise that we shouldn't be we shouldn't be fighting over our over some of our beliefs because quite simply. We've got two ignorant people or a group of ignorant people arguing out of ignorance. And I know that's a very difficult pill to swallow, but if we can just, um, and if you like, so, so, suspend our beliefs for a while and say, okay, let, let's, let's talk about this. So we need to cease seeing each other as enemies. Two things we can do in our heads. And then we need to be prepared to actually talk with people with whom we disagree. So, so these are my prerequisites. And we need to do it um, in good faith. So this isn't about trying to convince the other person, either directly or, or through subterfuge, that you're right and they're wrong. It's about agreeing to come together in dialogue to search for I'll say the truth for want of a better word, for a, for a better, for a better answer, for something that 
we, we both feel is you know, maybe somewhat different to our polarized beliefs that we can that we can both engage in. Um, if we can do those things, then we stand a, we stand a chance of having a productive conversation. And the problem is, is actually those prerequisites are, are kind of pretty high hurdles. And then when it comes to the productive conversation, we need some rules for the conversation. Um, and we need some, some techniques, we need some guidelines as to actually how to engage in those conversations. Because you know, if, you, if you've got two people with, with, with that, or say more than two people with very conflicting beliefs, um, you're very quickly going to get into a fight. You, you, you need you, you need some rules up front. And I've created, actually with a friend in, in Canada, a guy called David Creelman in Toronto, we've put together something that we call a conversation covenant. It's just a fancy name for a simple set of, of rules, if you will, guidelines that people need to agree to adopt if they're going to have a difficult conversation. I wanted to ask a final question, and it's probably more involved than the, the previous two that we've had. <laughs> but we, when we talk about the internet and all of the opportunities it has unlocked, right? I, I know that in the academic space and over time, knowledge practitioners as well have been excited by this idea of democratizing knowledge, right? So disseminating knowledge at mass, at scale, um, and now we're, we're in a situation where at times this can be perceived as being counterproductive. So we have seen last week in the US um, that uh, a lot of, well, not that everybody knows what's the truth, but a lot of supposed misinformation uh, coming out, invoking people to take certain actions and then as a repercussion of those actions, censorship coming from social media houses. Yep. Yep. So what, what has happened? Yes. And what can we do to continue to facilitate the conversation? Because if mm. we shut down the conversation, we're not having it, are we? Yep. So what do we do? I, th I think it's the, one of the biggest challenges, if not the biggest challenge that we face uh, right now in the world. And a bit like the last question, there's, <laughs> there's the, we're living in a very complex world. This last 75 years, really, the world has become a far more comp interconnected, complex place than it's ever been. And uh, we haven't really kept up with it um, as, as human beings. Um, there were a few things that have happened that were, were not anticipated. Um, everyone's heard of so-called filter bubbles and uh, epistemic bubbles and um, echo chambers. You know, and the filter bubble is where applications like Facebook and Google feed you the stuff that you like. So the more you read the stuff that you like, or the more you search for stuff that you like, the more it only gives you the stuff that you like and it doesn't give you the opposite points of view. So the those algorithms are kind of working, working against you. So that's the 
so-called filter bubble. Hard to avoid that. Um, the other is uh, so-called epistemic bubble, and this is where you know we choose our we, ch we we choose our social our social group, whether it's online or whether it's face to face, um, and we tend to um, socialize with people like ourselves. It may be similar education, similar background, similar jobs, who tend to have similar, uh, typically political and religious views. So that's a little knowledge bubble, if you will, that we're living in. And so both of those bubbles are cutting us out from some aspects of the outside world. We're not seeing everything. And then the other one, which is a little bit confusing, is the so-called echo chamber that often gets conflated with the concept of the filter bubble. But if you go back and look at the, the original use of the word, the filter bubble, sorry, the echo chamber is, is basically a phenomena where other people discredit say experts so they 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 cause you to lose your trust coming back to this business about trust and it's, you know, we, we the things we believe we've gained from people that we trust so if you want to change someone's mind if you're actually engaging in sort of information warfare rather than try to discredit the evidence discredit the person who's presenting the evidence so um an example of that would be trying to discredit uh, greta thunberg you know, to, to to claim that so there's a, you know, a whole lot of money behind her um trying to you know influence the world to um waste its time trying to prevent global warming so you you ridicule her i mean Trump is pretty good at ridiculing people. I mean, he does it. He does it brilliantly, you know. So, it's some um, crooked Hillary and sleepy Joe Biden and uh, Pocahontas. You know, just by just by labeling people with a little derogatory word or phrase, he's destroying a degree of trust in people. So this is this is active. This is this is information warfare, and I think this is the key to what's happened. We haven't realized that the the web facebook twitter what have you the in the, the the potential weapons of information warfare we thought they were potential weapons um or not, not weapons that they were potential weapons of potential forces for good you know that we could share knowledge we could we could connect with people we could learn more about the world but what we didn't realize was that a lot of people would see them as as information weapons, so means of uh, disseminating false information, uh, means of discrediting um, experts. And when you come to think about it now in the world, I, I, I break the word up into three groups. I think there's, a, there's a, a large bunch in the middle who want a peaceful world. This is where this, you know, think of the spectrum left to right. There's a bunch in the middle probably hopefully the, the majority who want to see a peaceful world and feel that we can um, progress through through conversation through peaceful means you then got a pretty large group on either side left or right who are engaged in information warfare they're playing by different rules they're not looking for dialogue they're looking they're not even looking for debate they're looking for, to destroy the enemy through the propagation of 
of, of disinformation, yes? And then right at the fringes, you've got people who um, are more interested in what's increasingly called kinetic warfare, traditional warfare. They're the ones that want to go out and burn buildings down and, and shoot people. Um, now, I hope that those two fringes are really small, but there's a huge number in the middle there um, who um, they're information warfare warriors, and they think they can change the world by um, by defeating their opponents through disinformation. Yeah. And the problem is, as human beings, we're vulnerable to it. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things I've taken away from from history, from from reading, from from going through the archives of possibly what I learned growing up and what I learned when I became British, for example, <laughs> and the differences in the way the story is told, just as an example. Yes, yes. Um, that story is actually the most powerful force for any human, right? The, the power of the story, the power of the story that is passed down from your ancestors, the power of the story you hear in school, the power of the story that's written in a textbook, that's written by someone who wants to, to emphasize a particular point. Even with science, um, if you have certain people funding that science, that will also influence the story that that science tells. So the power of the story has become abundantly clear <laughs> um, and I guess the the question I will take away both from the session that we've had and, and my ongoing look into this topic is how do we create a shared story that we all feel that we can subscribe to? Your thoughts? It's a good question and because we've talked so far I've talked a lot about the problems and the issues and how do we how do we move forward and i think unfortunately there is there is no silver bullet and i mean how old now is uh is facebook for example 2004 i think it was 2004 so 16 16 years and i think there's like two and a half billion people on facebook that's yeah with almost 8 billion people in the world. Wow, that's 25%, isn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, it's... I'm searching for... I won't say the answer, because in the complex world, there isn't an answer. There's a response, there's a way forward, there's a direction. And at the moment, we need to change the direction of our travel. Um, we need to stop seeing each other. I think fundamentally we need to stop seeing each other as enemies and start realizing that if we're going to create a better world, we need to be talking more and fighting less, whether it's information warfare or kinetic warfare, we need to be talking more and understanding each other and um, reconciling our, our, our differences. Um, we probably also need to be thinking about democracy and uh, possibly rethinking democracy. There's a lot of work going on in so-called participative democracy um, where you know, people are more engaged with the political process. I mean, I think that's a big part of the problem, both in this country with Brexit and in the States with um, you know, the, the wars now between the left and the right. Uh, people have lost, a lot of people lost, lost a lot of faith in democracy. So 
how do we how do we address that at the end of the day it's it's got to be it's got to be to do with conversation and that's <laughs> that's the clue quite how we do it um is another is another matter are you familiar with the concept of obviously have you come across that word obviously yeah. No, very few people have. Not too surprising. I can't remember the, the world was the word was only invented in the sixties. I can't quite remember who invented it. We talk all the time in our education system about literacy and numeracy and how important they are. So the numeracy, the ability to manipulate numbers, literacy, the ability to read and write. We never talk about obviously the ability to listen and the ability to converse. It's not, it's not on the school curriculum. It's just taken for granted that we're going to pick it up along the way. Now, th there are a few schools, actually in London, there's some in Lewisham, uh, that are teaching, obviously, they're teaching children how to think more critically, how to engage in dialogue, how to engage in debate, you know, um, to have constructive conversations. That's what they're fundamentally teaching them. So... I think that's probably a part of the answer. Um, but of course, if we start teaching that in schools now, that's not going to feed through for another 10, 20 years or so. Um, what can we do with us adults that are pretty much, pretty much set in our ways? Um, do you have any idea? Do you have any thoughts of your own? I, I believe that there is no easy answer so this is one of the reasons we have this conversation exactly yeah but the idea that i have is to keep putting it at the front of people's minds that they mm. need to think differently from how they have in the past so i see my role as as a speaker someone creating a podcast as someone producing content for the internet as a kind of provocateur Yes. As yeah. someone who puts new ideas, new opposed ways of thinking in front of other people. And I've taken up this role probably because my own story has been so diverse and so mixed. And I've had the ability to learn and appreciate different cultures from my own mm -hmm. and have suspended my beliefs in order to learn what I needed to learn to adapt to different cultures. And I see it as my as my role to give this experience back to others. But this is the only step I think I can take. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm doing something very similar with my knowledge cafes, whether they're face-to-face -face or whether they're online, um, or through the uh, so-called book that I'm writing on conversational leadership. It's all about... Um, trying to influence people who are prepared to be influenced um, to start to think a little differently. Um, but I suspect that's not, that's not enough. You know, how do we get at the, how do we get at the hardliners? Yeah. And, it's, and it's not, I think both you and I here, we're not, you know, we're not necessarily pushing left or right agendas. Yeah. We're, we're, we want to bring people together as you say, re-examine their beliefs to, that can be done through conversation, um, to figure out how we can best structure our organizations and societies and institutions to create a better world and not fight. Absolutely. And, 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 and whether we, 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 we come out of that with a, you know, a left-leaning government or right-leaning government, and personally, I don't care too much. Um, I've got my own preferences, but uh, 
Um, we just want to, as a, as a society, as a global civilization, we need to be making, we need to be making better sense of the world, and we need to be making better decisions. Absolutely. And that, and that's the challenge we have. This next, uh, yeah, <laughs> next ten years at least. Do you want to tell everyone about your book and how they can find out more about you before we leave the session? Okay, very simply, five years ago, I started writing uh, an online book on what I call conversational leadership. I, I won't go into too much detail there, but it's basically about conversation. Um, and it's, well, it's, it's about conversation and it's about leadership. So it's, it's about each and every one of us taking responsibility for creating a better world. That's the leadership piece. Um, to see leadership as a practice rather than a position of authority and how we can um, help make a better world through, through conversation. So that's the essence of the book. I call it a book because it's online. It's a cross between a blog and a book. Um, I've been updating it literally every day for the last five years. Um, it's always work in progress. It's, um, I'm doing something that they call working out loud. I want people to give me feedback as I write it and um, so I can update it and improve it. And uh, if it's actually it's quite simple to find it, just Google conversational leadership and you will find, uh, you will find the book. And uh, yeah, go take a look. And uh, if you find things in there that you think I've got wrong, you find things in there that uh, um, you think I could improve on. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that feedback. That, that's why I haven't written it as a conventional book. I, I, I want to engage with people. So that's, that's fundamentally what it's about. Thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been a lovely conversation, as, yep. as we would expect. <laughs> and I hope to have you one time again in the future on our show. Yeah, I look forward to that. It'll be interesting to see um, how our views have changed, uh, maybe in a year's time. Thank you, David. Thank you, Catherine. I've very much enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you today by Career Sketching with Catherine Ann Byam and the space where ideas launch. Career Sketching is a leadership development and coaching brand offering personalized career transition and transformation services. The Space Where Ideas Launch offers high-performance group leadership coaching and strategy facilitation to businesses in the food and health sectors. To find out more, contact Catherine Ann Byam on LinkedIn.